Let's begin reading this morning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And then he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Lance Morrow is an award-winning journalist for Time Magazine. Lance wanted to write an article on the universal joke. Do all cultures, do all people share a similar joke? Well, Morrow reached out to Time bureaus all over the globe for help. From Moscow to Buenos Aires, reporters on every continent searched for the joke. And yes, according to Morrow, there is a joke told around the world. It's what Americans call a Polak joke. It seems every culture has its own form of Polish joke where they make fun of another people group. It's the same basic joke, but its target varies. You see, every culture has a different other that they like to ridicule. Morrow wrote of his findings. The Flemings have Walloon jokes. The English tell Irish jokes and vice versa. People in Tokyo have jokes about the people in Osaka. On the tiny, tiny island of Grenada, 133 square miles, people on one side of the island have a large stock of vicious jokes about people on the other side of the island, and vice versa. Apparently, the one form of humor that all human beings have in common is our habit of mocking people different than ourselves. Everyone likes to jibe and jeer the other guy. I suppose in the first century, the Jews had their Gentile jokes and the Gentiles had their Jewish jokes. In fact, I brought a good one with me this morning. <laughs> Did you hear about the priest, the preacher, and the rabbi? They were all debating over whose ministry was most powerful. To settle the argument, they challenged each other to go out into the woods and to convert a wild bear. Well, a week, a week later, they returned to discuss the results. Well, the priest, he had his arm in a sling. He had a broken leg. He said at first the bear jumped him, but he doused him with holy water, and that animal became docile as a lamb. Well, the preacher, he rolled in. He was in a wheelchair. 
He had several broken ribs, a concussion. He said that he had the toughest time getting that bear down into the water. But once he got him baptized, man, he turned just as gentle as a lamb. The rabbi, he was on a stretcher in a full body cast, had IVs coming out of his arm. He was in terrible shape. The priest asked him, he said, wow, what happened to you? The rabbi said, well, you know, if I had it to do over again, I don't think I would have started with circumcision. (laughs) I hope any Jews here this morning would consider that joke fairly innocent. But the jokes told in Paul's day were far from innocent. They were vicious. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans hated the Jews. And the Jews hated anybody who wasn't a Jew. The Greeks called anyone who was a non-Greek a barbarian. It was their name for an uncivilized brute. If you weren't Jewish, it didn't matter what you were. Among Jews, you were disparagingly called a Gentile. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. Not the Georgia dogs. Not your cute, cuddly pets. But no, the wild, mangy dogs that scavenged and terrorized city streets. According to the Jews, the Gentiles were kindling for the flames of hell. They had a motto, the best of serpents crushed, the best of the Gentiles killed. It was against Jewish law for a Hebrew woman to help her Gentile neighbor give birth to her baby since it would be bringing one more heathen into the world. I'm just saying, you think there's friction today between blacks and whites, reds and blues, occupiers and one percenters, even bulldogs and yellow jackets? I mean, any of today's tensions pale in comparison to the hostility that existed in the first century between the Jews and the Gentiles. Why is it human beings tend to pull apart instead of come together? We gravitate toward folks that look as we look and like what we like and live where we live. You know, it's really true. Birds of the feather flock together. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported a study that found that most people have a hidden bias toward any person who speaks with a foreign accent. In fact, the heavier the accent, the more what's said will be doubted. The article concludes, if it sounds like you're not from around here, our suspicion is on high alert. Our bias isn't based on character, but on the fact you talk different. I guess we even want to sound, we want people to sound like we sound. Here's another study I read about this week. Scientists have identified a hormone in the brain called oxytocin. It's called the hormone of love. When present in the brain, it aids in the building of trust and the bonding of people. But researchers have found that it only works with people with which you already have an affinity. In other words, it doesn't help with strangers or with random people. It produces a love that only extends to our own in-group, to our kind of people. The people who live in northern Italy, they have a name for the Croatians who live just beyond the border. They call them the Tremontana, or beyond the mountains. But the Croats also have a name for the people who live in northern Italy. 
They're called Tremontania, or the people beyond the mountains. Logistically speaking, the Croats and the Italians, they're neighbors. I mean, they could be friends and allies. But both people groups stay isolated. And they view each other as strangers. They're divided by the Alps. Each group sees the other as the people beyond the mountains. And this is how the Jews and the Gentiles saw each other. In fact, this is how all of sinful, divisive human nature refers to each other. We have a hard time getting along, don't we? And yet Paul writes to the Ephesians to demonstrate how God has re, how you, excuse me, how God used this breach, this animosity between Jews and Gentiles to prove that Jesus is able to overcome all forms of polarization, all forms of alienation. Jesus can bring about a wonderful unification. You see, Jesus is able to turn the two into one. Again, Paul writes to these Ephesians here in verse 11, and he says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. You know, today most boys, even Gentiles, are circumcised out of convenience or hygiene. But in Paul's day, circumcision was the badge of Jewishness. It was the mark of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, father of the Jews. And lots of the name calling revolved around this very personal and intimate practice. I mean, when the Jews wanted to insult the Gentiles, they called them the uncircumcision. When Gentiles wanted to return the favor and insult the Jews, it was the mutilators. In the Old Testament, God chose one nation, Israel, to be his special people. He made promises to and covenants with Israel that he didn't make with other nations. God gave his law to the Jewish people. In Israel, God chose one family to win the whole human family. Yes, Israel was God's special people, but they weren't God's only people. God created and loves all mankind. Oh, it hasn't worked out yet, but God chose Israel that through them he could preach the gospel to all nations. God wanted Israel to be a light, to be a beacon. Instead, the beacon became a barrier. Rather than being humbled by God's blessings, Israel grew proud. The Jews failed in the mission that God had given them. Rather than witness to the Gentiles, their self-righteousness became a turnoff, a major obstacle. You see, the Jews felt superior in the specifics of their religion. Oh, they kept the Sabbath, and they ate the kosher foods, and they circumcised their sons, and they offered the prescribed sacrifices, and they celebrated on the special feast days, all unlike those Gentiles. You see, these two people groups, they were separated by custom and by culture and by religion, and the chasm was humongous. And these differences made the Jews look down their nose on the Gentiles rather than lift them up. This air of superiority among the Jews infuriated the Gentiles. And over the centuries, the gap between them just grew wider and wider and wider. Supposedly, the Jews were the insiders. They occupied the coveted position. 
They had the inside track on God's favor and God's blessing. Whereas the Gentiles, they were alienated and separated. They were the outsiders. Listen to Paul describe the spiritual condition of the Gentiles in verse 12. He says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. One commentator sums up the status of these Gentiles as Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Without Christ, what terrible evils lie clustering thick within these two words. Think about it. Without Christ. The Gentiles, they lived a defeated existence. Christless. They had no Messiah. They had no king. They had no one to lead them out of despair to a better life. They had no promise of a new day. Unlike the Jews, the Gentiles had no national fervor. There was no patriotism to rally around. I mean, Rome consisted largely of conquered foes, not loyal citizens. People had lost confidence in the empire. Rome had become so corrupt that it no longer stirred anyone's loyalties. Even worse, the Gentiles, they lacked a promise from God. They were friendless. Unlike the Jews, they had no assurances that God was with them. I mean, think about it. The Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses were capricious dictators that just toyed with people, toyed with people's lives. People would sacrifice to appease these gods, but none of these gods was willing to strike a deal with man and offer man assurances. This made life a crapshoot to the Gentiles. There was no certainty. There were no assurances they could stake their future on. Only a murky vagueness, something called destiny or fate. See, the faith of the Gentiles had no object. And this made the Gentiles hopeless. Historians now refer to the first century AD as the age of suicide. It was so common. The Roman historian Tacitus tells of a man who killed himself because he was angry that he had been born. I mean, the Gentiles resented life rather than see it as a gift. Paul sums up their despair without God in the world. Think about it. They were part of creation, but they were apart from their creator. There is no more desperate place to be. This is the situation of many people today as well. No wonder they're aimless and rudderless and hopeless. And yet, to the contrary, the Jews, they had a Savior on their horizon. Though many of the Jews had yet to recognize him as Jesus of Nazareth, they believed he would come. As a people, the Jews felt appropriately proud of their race. They were a special nation. They belonged to a commonwealth born and blessed by the Almighty. They had a spiritual birthright. God had made them promises and entered into covenantal agreements with these people. The Jews knew their creator, the one who created them. They were not alone in the universe. And all this combined to give the Jews a very different kind of outlook, a hopeful outlook. They were the insiders, whereas the Gentiles were the outsiders. And yet here's the human tendency. 
You see, most insiders, they like to stay on the inside. Even if that means perpetuating the notion that the outsiders are still on the outs. Rather than acknowledging our commonalities, how often do we emphasize our differences? We even use confusing, ambiguous verbiage to sort of push ourselves further apart from other people. Take, for example, the word colored. I mean, who among us isn't a color? If you were colorless, you'd be invisible. We are all varying shades of color. Raleigh Washington is an African-American pastor in Denver, Colorado. I like how he puts it. When I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was still black. When I go out in the cold, I'm still black. When I go out in the sun, I get more black. When I'm sick, I'm black. And when I die, I'm sure I'll still be black. But I found out that when white people are born, you're pink. When you grow up, you become white. When you go out in the cold, you turn blue. And when you stay out in the sun, you turn red. When you're sick, they say you look green. And when you die, you turn purple. Now, what I want to know is why do they call blacks colored people? <laughs> I'll tell you why anyone accentuates the color of another person's skin. It's to further separate them. It's to further push them apart. It's to separate people. That's why people talk about it. It's the sinful pride of man to look for ways to draw boundaries among people. Whether it be by age or by accent or by the color of your skin or maybe by your longevity in a certain place or by your bank account or your politics or your musical taste or your allegiance to a college. And the list just goes on and on. It's amazing the various ways people tend to separate themselves from others. But understand this. Jesus died to bring people together, not push people apart. His goal is to turn outsiders into insiders. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You got to know this business of unity. Jesus has got some skin in the game, man. It cost him to bring us together. Don't ever scoff at this notion of unity. It is blood bought. It is what Jesus died for. Paul, a former rabbi, he uses Jewish terminology here. The rabbi spoke of the Gentiles as being far off from God and the things of God. Whereas the Jews were the people near to God. Again, more insider, outsider language. The imagery speaks of vast distances. A great gulf of separation. Two groups as far apart as possible. And yet imagine this continental divide suddenly shrinks. Remember the old movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? I mean, with one pull of the switch, these little, the teenagers became microscopic. Sort of wish you could still do that, don't you? <laughs> this is what Jesus did to that gulf that separates man from God and, and from us, from others. Even the gulf between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus shrunk the distance. This Greek term translated near, it means to squeeze together. 
are to compress. In Christ, a spiritual fusion occurs. We become one. We're squeezed together with God and with each other. Hey, we're as close as we'll ever get. Now, first, think about this in terms of your relationship with God. Do you realize that in Christ, you're as close to God as you'll ever be? Oh, but Pastor Sandy, I don't feel very close to God this morning. Hey, the feelings may come and go, but in Christ, Jesus has covered the distance. He has made up for the lost ground. The blood of Jesus Christ has blotted out your sin. It bridges the gap between you and God. His blood earns for all believers an immediate and intimate and uninterrupted fellowship with the Father in heaven. One of the most common prayers I hear prayed is, God, draw me closer. In fact, a lot of our songs contain these lyrics. But in Christ, you can't get any closer than you already are. What we should be praying is, God, open my eyes to the awareness of your presence. God, show me how close I am to you. We have been squeezed together with God through Jesus Christ. At times, we may not feel like it. We may feel like a million miles away from God. But don't fall victim to your feelings. Live by faith. I'll never forget the first time I saw Mount Hood. I was visiting my in-laws in Oregon, and we were driving up to this 11,000-foot mountain peak. Now, understand, we talk about the North Georgia mountains, but they're not mountains. We make mountains out of, we make molehills into mountains. I mean, this is a mountain. Problem, though, it was a cloudy day. The visibility was horrible. I had yet to see the mountain. In fact, I kept staring off into the distance. I remember looking out the car window off into the distance looking for this mountain, thinking I could catch a glimpse of it somewhere out there, way out there on the horizon. When all of a sudden, man, we turned a corner and bam, right there in front of my eyes was the largest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was colossal. I mean, the mountain dominated the landscape. You see, I was close, but I didn't know it. And in that one second, in my mind, I went from far off to far out, just like that. And you know what I'm praying for you this morning? I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes, the eyes of your heart, to just how near you are to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm praying you'll go from far off to far out, boom, through faith. But not only that, this is just half of our reconciliation. The blood of Jesus also brings us near to one another. John Reed, he tells of driving a school bus in Australia. His bus carried Caucasian and Aboriginal students. And the black kids and the white kids, they would squabble every single day, quarrel constantly. Well, finally, one day, John had had enough. He pulled his bus over to the side of the road. He made all the kids exit onto the side of the road. He told them, from now on, I refuse to allow either white kids or black kids to ride my bus. If you want to ride my bus, you have to be green. He asked the students, what color are you? Before they could reboard the bus, John made each of the kids answered green. Well, when all the green kids were seated, he cranked up a quiet bus. 
Man, thought he'd finally found some peace. That's until he heard one of the kids say, hey, all the dark green kids on one side and all the light green kids on the other side. You see, John had hoped to end their division through words, through just suggestions, but his effort failed. It, why? It had no substance. Why well, believe anyone is green? You see, there's more to our unity than just words and gimmicks. You want some substance for why we have been brought together and made one? You want some blood, sweat, and tears? Who's invested in this thing? You want some skin in the game? Jesus Christ has got some skin in the game. He's got some blood, sweat, and tears in this endeavor. Jesus has gone the distance to bring us near one another. And this is why we can say today, if you live estranged from one another, you're denying the blood of Jesus. There's a reason for us to be united. We need to live for what he died for. Jesus doesn't negotiate a peace. He doesn't try to smooth talk us into it. Notice verse 14. For he himself is our peace. You see, the method that God uses to break down differences and bring people together isn't sitting down with them at the bargaining table. It's not you meet me halfway and I'll meet you halfway. Tit for tat ain't where it's at. God doesn't arbitrate or negotiate. Instead, he grabs you by the hand and he grabs me by the hand and he brings us both together and he says, hey, if you want me, you got to take him. That's how God does it. This is what 1 John tells us. It warns us. You can't say that you love God if you hate your brother. You can't say that. You see, the cross has two bars, one vertical, one horizontal. Jesus died to reconcile man to God, the vertical. But he also died to reconcile man to his fellow man, the horizontal. And you can't accept one without the other. Whatever it is that you're holding on to that helps you justify your separation from that other group, whether your prejudice is racial or political or social or economic, hey, it pales in comparison to what's drawing us and wooing us and beckoning us all to come together. Jesus died not only to forgive us of our sin, but to deliver us from this us versus them mentality. I don't care how righteous you think your bias might be. It is sinful if it keeps you from answering God's call for unity. Jesus is our peace. And to resist that peace made possible by his blood is to resist Jesus himself. Every year... The National Football League has an all-star game. It's called the Pro Bowl. It really gets very little notice for what it is. <clears throat> but top-notch players, they all gather together. Star players from the American Conference, they wear white jerseys. Whereas the star players from the National Conference, they don blue jerseys. But the game is notoriously sloppy. And the players put out very little effort. In fact, last year they talked about even discontinuing the whole game. See, here's the problem. A player isn't paid by his conference. His salary comes from his team. And though the stars wear the jersey of their conference, notice what helmet they're wearing. They're wearing the helmet of their team. 
You see, their actual allegiance is to their team. And it's not worth risking injury to the team just to perform for your conference. And let me suggest, this is what happens in the church. We come together on Sundays and we don the jersey of Christ. Supposedly, we're all on his team. Yet, just like the pro bowlers, we're actually playing for whatever special interest holds our loyalty. Whether it be my race, or my ethnicity, or my culture, or my professional guild, or my economic status, or my political party, etc., etc. And this is why church gets such a lackluster effort from us. Because we're just playing for our conference, not our team. We're wearing the jersey, but the helmet doesn't match. Oh, we might, accept, we might get excited at game time. But because our commitment is so nominal and dwarfed by our other identities, we, shall, we fall short of the harmony that God wants to exhibit through us. And then what people do, they blame the church and say it's the church's problem and wonder if church is really worth the effort problem is we're wearing the jersey but we don't have the right helmet on we haven't embraced the helmet we haven't truly embraced we're not living for what christ died for which is our unity we're living for our own special interests and agendas paul finishes verse 14 for who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation you got to know on the cross by his blood jesus paid for our unity But then he rose from the dead, kicking in fences and breaking down walls and mowing over hedges and taking apart barriers and redrawing dividing lines. Jesus was good at redrawing lines. The temple in the first century was a court within a court within a court. In fact, moving from outside in, there were six courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of the women, and then the court of Israel, and then the court of the priests, and then the holy place, and then the innermost court, the holy of holies. And from each court to the next, certain people were disqualified from admission until finally only one man on one day a year was allowed into the holy of holies, and that was the high priest. In other words, walls and barriers existed between each court. Jerusalem archaeologists working on the Temple Mount have discovered the wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And apparently a placard hung from that wall which threatened death to any Gentile who dared to enter further than that wall. I'm telling you, people get serious about keeping outsiders out. In fact, this was the very reason Paul was in prison. In Acts chapter 21, he was accused of bringing a Gentile beyond this very wall. And Paul was amazed that he was being punished for ignoring a wall that God wanted torn down, that Jesus had died to tear down. In Christ, all the walls between God and man and between us and them have been razed to the ground. It reminds me of the three French soldiers who came home After World War II, they brought with them the dead body of a friend. And they asked the Catholic priest in their town to give him a decent burial there in the church cemetery. The priest asked, was he baptized Catholic? They didn't know. 
Well, the priest refused. He said this was a Catholic graveyard. And so the soldiers had to bury their friend right outside the fence. But when the men returned the next day, they were surprised to find that the grave had been moved inside the graveyard fence. And they wanted to know why. Who moved the grave? They went and they found the priest. And the priest admitted to them, Last night I felt very guilty. I couldn't sleep. So I went to the graveyard and I moved the fence to include your friend's grave. And you see, this is what Jesus has done for us. He moves fences. He breaks down walls. He erases lines of demarcation that once divided us. Paul says what kept the Gentiles outside of God's family was the Jewish law contained in ordinances. Now notice the problem wasn't God's law per se. Jesus boiled down the whole law into two commandments. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament illustrated what that love looked like in an agrarian society at that time in history. The Jews had 613 ordinances that contained this law of love that they were expected to keep. But to the Gentiles, many of these ordinances were irrelevant. They weren't applicable. I mean, Gentiles didn't know anything about the Sabbath. They they weren't expected to conform their diet to kosher rules. They had no reason to be circumcised. This is why Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law by putting God's love in our hearts. But he did wipe out this law contained in ordinances. And in doing so, Jesus broke down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, he left no more reason for us to remain separate. Notice verse 15. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. In 1991, the world watched in amazement as the Berlin Wall came down. That concrete barricade stood between east and west for 40 years. You know, people were shot trying to cross that wall. Then in 1989, the East German government allowed its citizens to visit relatives in the west. And it was the joy of friends and family. It was the power of unity that caused the Germans to rise up and dismantle the former wall of separation. Yet the Berlin Wall, it stood for just 40 years. The wall Jesus abolished, this law contained in ordinances, stood for 1,400 years. Many people thought it was an unscalable wall. It represented fundamental differences that could never be resolved. Even more so than East and West, there was no way that Jews and Gentiles could ever hammer out an agreement and establish a unity. But what negotiation couldn't do, a Savior does. The peace we experience in Jesus lifts us up above our dividing lines and our walls of separation. It's been said, only a new love can destroy an old prejudice. And we find that new love in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. Hey, we're one body of believers since we're saved through one body sacrificed on the cross. The cross is how we're all forgiven. 
The cross is how we all come to know God. The cross is how we're all saved and blessed. The sacrifice of Jesus is such a unifying force. How dare any of us insist on hiding behind our walls? Notice the word abolish here in verse 15. It means to nullify or to make irrelevant. Christian unity eclipses our differences by giving us an overarching commonality. The sacrifice of Jesus creates such a powerful bond between us. We're willing to overlook our peculiarities. Hey, if you're a Gentile, be a Gentile. If you're a Jew, be a Jew. If you're a brother, be a brother. If you're a redneck, be a redneck. If you're a Democrat, be a Democrat. If you're a Republican, be a Republican. If you homeschool your kids, well, then homeschool them. If you send them to public school, then support the public school. If you're a yellow jacket, be a bulldog. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm just kidding. My point is, is that we're never going to agree on everything. It's been said, the only time two people think alike is when one of them isn't thinking. We'll never be united when the only path to that unity is to sit down and negotiate a settlement over every point in which we disagree. In Christ, though, we have a commonality greater than all of our differences. And it's when we surrender to Jesus that we're finally united on the deepest level. This is why it said true Christian unity isn't found at a negotiating table, but at the communion table. You know, when the Berlin Wall did come down, suddenly there were no more East Germans and West Germans, just Germans. There was now one new unified Germany. And this is what Jesus has done. From Jews and Gentiles, he has created a third race. One new man from the two, as Paul puts it. Christians are a new people group. We are a new race. Jesus didn't intend to make Gentiles Jewish. Nor Jews to become more like Gentiles. In the same way, he doesn't want white folks to become ebonic, nor does he want black folks to become vanilla. I mean, go ahead and act your age. It's okay. Have your music. Enjoy your tastes. Jesus just overshadows all of those superficial distinctions, and he launches one new man, the Christian. In Christ, we're not a hybrid. We're not some half-breed. We're not a mixture some kind of schizophrenic, unsure of our real identity. We're an entirely new race, a third race. And we're called on to embrace our race and relate to others and come together around this new identity, not the special interests that we might be holding on to. It's interesting. This was the exact terminology used by the early church. This is how they saw themselves. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria, he wrote, We who worship God in a new way as the third race are Christians. He coined a new phrase. We're not Jews. We're not Gentiles. We're a third race, Christian. And until today's church, in fact, until our church sees ourselves first and foremost as this third race, a new people group, We'll never overcome the pettiness and the division and the complacency that keeps us defeated and apart. Don't wear the jersey if your helmet doesn't match. 
What identity we embrace makes all the difference. There's, there's a herd of deer that live in the forests of Germany along its border with the Czech Republic. In 1989, when the Iron Curtain fell, the fence between east and west was taken down. The deer were now free to migrate back and forth, but they didn't. They continued to travel as they had before the fence was removed. Even years later, their migratory patterns remained the same. Younger animals born after the fence had been removed and torn down, they still refused to cross the former lines. You see, deer follow traditional trails that get modeled for them by older generations. Apparently, the younger deer have yet to venture off the beaten path. One researcher stated, the wall in their head is still there. And this is what you and I should be on guard against. The wall in our head. What scares me are the inbred biases and prejudices that have been passed down to me by former generations. There are walls in our heads. We like the familiar. We favor our favorites. And unless we force ourselves to venture off the beaten path, we'll never really exhibit the unity that is ours in Christ. Hey, there is too much at stake today. There's too much, at, too much out there in the world to divide us. This fractious world we live in has made it far too easy for Satan. There's so many side issues and splinter groups and special interests and hobby horses. That's why unless we stay true to Christ's claim on our lives and not get distracted, we are doomed to fall short. I love verse 17 here. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Notice Jesus preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Both groups needed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is a one-size-fits-all remedy. It's for privileged sinners like Jews. It's for orphan sinners like Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus is what saves all sinners. And then in verse 18, we find the ultimate evidence of just how far we Gentiles have come. He says, for through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. Everyone, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, come to God through Jesus by his spirit. Think of two believers in Jesus. Two believers in Jesus. One is a Jew. He has memorized the scripture. He has spent his whole life long trying to obey the law of God. The other is a Greek. He spent his life offering incense to Zeus. He's been out there on a drift on a sea of paganism. And yet that former idolater has the same access to God as that faithful Jew. And why? Because our only access to God is through Jesus Christ. It's in Christ. That's what makes the difference. Imagine if you got a text message saying that tickets go on sale for heaven starting first thing tomorrow. Where would you be at 8 o'clock? You don't want to miss heaven. You'd be the first person up at the window, at the box office. But what if the clerk said, sorry, heaven is sold out? 
You'd be pretty upset. You'd wonder, how can that be? I'm the first customer to the counter. But here's what happened. God bought out his own show. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of heaven's tickets so that now he can give them freely to those who trust in him. The only access we have to God is through Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated access also means usher or escort. In Christ, we are escorted into God's presence. Hey, if you've, if you've never really known God, you've heard of him and you've wondered if he's real, but you're not really sure. Realize access to God, it isn't granted to just anybody. It's the blood of Jesus that pays for the ticket. And it's the spirit who ushers you in. That's why you need to ask yourself today, have I ever trusted in Jesus? If you trust in Jesus, you'll know immediately that God is real. For that distance, it'll be shrunk down. And you'll come to know God through Jesus Christ. For 35 years, Wilfredo Garza, he lived the life of an illegal Mexican immigrant. Every day he crossed the border to find work to support his family. Garza spent every day looking over his shoulder, scared, afraid, risking his life. Four times he was caught by border patrol. One day Garza worked up the courage to walk into the office of an immigration attorney. The lawyer discovered that Garza's father had been born in Texas. That meant that Wilfredo Garza was an American citizen, but he hadn't known it. And for 35 years, he'd lived as a stranger. And there are folks today, here today, who are Christians. You wear the jersey, but your helmet doesn't match. You act like a stranger to these promises, like an illegal. You're always looking over your shoulder. You're never becoming a part. Perhaps you're a Christian but you're a lot of other stuff too. And that tends to get in the way, especially of the unity God wants you to experience with the rest of the body of Christ. Jesus is serious about this unity. Jesus is our peace. Don't keep living behind walls in your head and think it's okay. It's time we shelve our other agendas and live for what Jesus died for It's time that we embrace a third race. If there's a commitment in your life more important than our unity, then think again. For on the cross, Jesus created one new man. I pray you and I will live like it.